0: As we approach the end of the book uh, of our study of the book of Hebrews, we are not only in what we would call the homestretch, but we are actually in today's section in a in, in today's section, something that a good number of commentators have referred to as the climax of the book as the as the this is the focus of what I'm trying to get you to see based upon everything that we have Learned in this book and we've seen Jesus who is the greater than uh, the greatest revelation greater than angels greater than Moses greater than the priesthood the greatest sacrifice and we've seen that we need to hold on to the greater than by faith in Hebrews 11 in uh, the second half of chapter 10 and through Hebrews chapter 11. And then we've seen now we've been looking at a growing in the greater than. That is looking to him who is the author and perfecter of our faith as we run this race and pursuing the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That is the holiness that is ours in him, pursuing that and peace with all men. And everything that we see following that in the exhortations fit Largely within to that, but it is all it is all rooted in revo- and revolving around this one who is the greater than. When we got into chapter thirteen, right before that, it told us uh, entering into chapter thirteen, let us be grateful, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And then he gives a number of different exhortations regarding what it is to live in gratefulness for this kingdom that cannot be shaken which we have received. We saw letting brotherly love continue showing hospitality being in solidarity with those uh, of our brothers and sisters who have been imprisoned being of one body with them holding marriage in honor uh, being content with what we have uh, and in so doing keeping our life free from the love of money Because remembering we have God with us. we saw last time to remember our leaders. Speaking of those who have gone before those leaders who most likely had suffered as martyrs for the sake of the gospel of Christ. Remembering the outcome of their way of life and thus imitating their faith. Speaking of them as those who were in the past. We'll be, in verse seventeen, uh, next month we'll be looking at the leaders who are there now with them. But remembering not only the Old Testament saints, but those who have gone before, and the ways they held on to Christ, and in, and also remembering their teaching, such that we might not be led away by all sorts of every wind of doctrine, every wind of doctrine and teaching, being rooted in the truth of God's word, and remembering that. We are not the best Bible readers ever. Every generation, remember, thinks every generation thinks that we're better than everyone who's gone before. It's not it's not new with the with the current young uh, with the current crop of youngins. It was true of when I was young, when you who were somewhat older than me were young. And when those who were older than you were young, it was true of them. but rather there's a whole history of interpretation upon which, we, upon, which we lo- upon which we learn. Standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before, we'd say it's a confessional way of approaching our study of the Bible. Remembering that our strength comes from grace, not foods, not all the other things to which that can steer us off because they don't really truly benefit in the things of which Christ gives us. And in verse 10 now, he goes on to explain the significance of this and the centrality of Christ to all this in speaking about an altar. What do we think of when we think of an altar? Behind me is an altar. Altar. But an altar is, a, in, is, a, is in, in the context of the Old Covenant worship, a place, a place where sacrifices are offered, a place of worship, a place in which something is offered. And this is a callback here to verse 9, which he said, It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, and not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Such foods may sate our hunger and deal with the rumbling tummy and are indeed necessary to sustaining uh, life. Of course, the foods here in the context are most likely with regards uh, to the foods which the Levites ate from the sacrifices as well as the Jewish ritual law under the Mosaic Covenant, meaning that the various different foods that they could and could not eat. But they do not provide for us our greatest and deepest need, which is reconciliation with God through union with Christ. And we have an altar of which those who may oppose the gospel in the context of these believers to whom this book was this letter, this series of sermons whatever we may look at it as, were written. The group to whom this was written appear to be uh, Jewish believers who were wavering because of various different types of persecution. And in that, returning to the old sacrificial system was looking mighty attractive. Because Judaism was an accepted religion. This new Christianity was not. But he's stating to go back to that is to go back to something that has passed and has is never coming back. In fact, they were most likely also being persecuted by their own countrymen. But he says of that, we have an altar. The significance of that altar is from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. That tent, of course, being the tabernacle. Or in this case because this was most likely written before A.D. 70, the temple. Those who serve the temple, they have no right to eat from this altar of which we can eat. And so we then ask, what is the significance of this? What is this altar? Well, it has everything that it has everything to do with what came, just came before, in which he says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. This is the altar of grace. Consider this. While the Levites had uh, were able to eat of sacrifices, that is, sacrifices had been offered and there were some sacrifices of which they were able to eat what was left over specific portions of them. That was part of their portion was part of their food was from the sacrifices. But there was one particular sacrifice of which they could not eat. No one could eat of that particular sacrifice. And that's, that's in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 27, on the day of atonement, in which a bull was offered and a goat was offered as a sin offering on behalf of God's people. And the blood... Uh, the blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place. It was sprinkled over everything that was in the holy place to make atonement in there. And then the carcass was carried outside the camp and it was burned and turned into ashes. No one could eat of that sacrifice. Leviticus 16.27 says. And the bull for the sin offering. And the goat for the sin offering. Whose blood was brought in. To make atonement in the holy place. Shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh. And their dung. Shall be burned up with fire. So that sacrifice was discarded. But yet we. We. Have an altar from which to eat that has everything to do with this, uh, everything to do with an atonement sacrifice of which the Levites could not partake simply by doing those things. That those outside of Christ cannot partake of those kinds of things. Remember, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And so this altar is the altar of grace that has been provided for us in Christ Jesus. We're going to explore this idea of of this a little bit as we continue in this text today. In particular, as it relates to going outside the camp because it continues that imagery. Even the various different, even one of our sacraments testifies of this. That of the Lord's Supper. That while when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, the bread remains bread and the cup remains the cup. We by faith in our hearts feast upon Christ and testifies that we eat of the great eat of God's goodness for us in Christ Jesus. We partake of that in Him. While this is not, as some commentators say, primarily about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper testifies to the truth of which this is speaking. So we eat from the altar of the sacrifice of Christ. As I mentioned, many sacrifices were consumed by the priests after they were offered. But not that bull, not that goat. And here is this truth that we have here. By faith, we partake of this Christ Who has been sacrificed. That one who went upon the cross for us. That one of whom those bulls and those goats testified. Who is our atoning sacrifice. We partake of him. By faith. That is what we have. And that is the greatest thing we could have. Which is why. We see the things before. This is an altar of which only those in Christ can eat. The old covenant was inferior. It, it was given for a purpose and it fulfilled that purpose. And furthermore, all other ways of approach uh, uh, ways of uh, attempting to approach God. Do not do this. And so we have this one who is the greater than. What we have is far greater than anything. Any other thing might offer. To eat and drink from that altar. Is to quote our Lord Jesus Christ himself. When he spoke to the woman at the well. Is to never thirst again. And John 6 to never hunger Again, we might say, Well, I'm in Christ, I've received Him, and I am receiving from Him. And frankly, right now, I'm kind of hungry. It is not of that kind of hunger of which He's speaking, but it is the hunger, and it is the great need of which every human needs, and that is reconciliation with God, being reconnected with Him. And that is what we have in Christ Jesus. And those who would, those who have the strength or the power, the greatness to which we might often, we might find ourselves longing, who may oppose Christianity or try to put it down, or those who may try to say, I'm a good supplement to Christianity. There is no supplement, by the way, to Christianity. Do not offer this. The old covenant does not, nor, do, nor, do, nor does the quest for things and power, such as what, what's rooted in the, in the love of money, or chasing after various different types of, uh, of uh, carnal fulfillment. Only Christ fulfills that for us. It is only in him and by him. And he goes on in verse 11 and he expands on it, explains. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as sacrifice of sin for sin are burned outside the camp. We read that from that earlier. So we explained the basis of that. But here's the logic in this. He gives us the logic there. On the, on the great day of atonement, the sacrifice was offered. And they gave a testimony of the sacrifice of Christ, which was to come. That one who, the, who John the Baptist said is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on the day of atonement, on that very day, there was a bull that was slain. And that served as an atonement for temporal purposes for the sins of the people For the sins of the priest. His family. And also a lamb was offered. On behalf of the people. Those sacrifices. As we mentioned earlier. Were taken into the inner sanctum. Of the temple. The holy of holies. Only the high priest could enter in there. We looked at that when we were in Hebrews. Earlier in the book of Hebrews. In fact we don't have anything in the scripture. That states this. But there is a. uh, There is a tale that. Uh, a a rope was tied to the high priest when he went in in case he went in and he was not worthy and he dropped dead. And and so that way he could be pulled out because no one else could enter because it was the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was in there. And even the Ark of the Covenant, everything in there had to be sprinkled with the blood, atoning for the sins of the people. And as mentioned, those carcasses were burned up being taken away outside of the city outside of the temple so they couldn't eat of that but the truth here is this Jesus the one who is the fulfillment of all these things testified to in the sacrificial system he too was sacrificed and he was not sacrificed in the temple he was sacrificed on Golgotha, Mount Calvary. Outside Jerusalem's wall as an offering to God on our behalf. Meaning those committed, uh, looking to other things or other things for their redemption are excluded. It also tells us this, that Jesus' death outside the camp, it tells us that his death and his redemption is not provincial. It's not tied to a specific group of people or a nationality or a city. But all who would look to him by faith. Earlier we read from Isaiah chapter uh, 6 and 7 in the service. And it made reference to something about Assyria. Well, I'll, and I, we've done this before, but there's folks who are here who weren't here when we've done this before, so we're going to do it again. Um, you don't please you don't have to uh, actually don't answer aloud. But I there's three people I'm going to name for you: Egypt, Israel, Egypt, Assyria, and Israel. And I'll have to ask you question number one of those three: Who is God's people? Question number two, who is is the work of God's hands? And question number three, who is God's inheritance among Israel, Egypt, and Assyria? And of course, our temptation to say, well, Israel's all three of those. Now listen to the book of Isaiah chapter 19, verse 24. Back to verse 23 in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians in that day. Israel will be third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts is blessed, saying blessed be Egypt, my people and Assyria, the work of my hands and Israel, my inheritance Our Lord Christ was sacrificed outside the camp. And so his redemption is for people from every tongue, tribe, language, and people, not a specific provincial group of people. And he is available permanently to all who would look to him by faith, whom God has worked in, whom God has granted faith, and who by that faith. Look to him. And he is there permanently available. And not just for the new folks. But for everyone who is in him. There always outside the camp. Is Christ. Is our Lord Christ. who ge- Who is for us. Wisdom from God, who is for us, who is for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification, First Corinthians one thirty and thirty one. He is for us those, and we frequently will obsess about many many different things. I know I do, and I'm sure you do as well, and find ourselves doing um, wriggling our hands. We're getting worried about things. I mentioned a month ago, we're coming up on a season in our, in our uh, country cycle in which people, and Christians as well, get very anxious. We have no business really getting anxious. Because of this truth. While well, all that is happening... There is Christ who was sacrificed outside the camp, who is for us. Everything. Our life and our redemption. Or maybe the tricky parts of life or the tricky things that come our way. We struggle with we, we struggle with those all the while. There is Christ for us, who was burned, who was sacrificed outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That is to set us apart unto God, to make us righteous, to set us apart before him such that we are holy and blameless in him. The man we discussed on yesterday, uh, we were talking about our new book, uh, Rediscovering Church, and we just went through the introduction. Which was, was really packed, and it's really just kind of giving a broad overview of everything that's in it. But one thing he stated is that uh, the book stated, "Is our church is perfect. Not just our church, but every gospel church is perfect in Christ." In Christ, holy and blameless before him. Now, the way that works out. Now, in practice, however, we're still sinners, right? And so we end up sinning against each other. We end up stepping on each other's toes. We end up offending one another, um, giving us opportunity to grow and to experience the sandpaper that we are to one another. Some of us being 60 grit. Some of us maybe being 4,000 grit. But he sanctifies us unto himself, sets us apart to himself. And in so doing. We're justified. We are being sanctified. And we will be glorified. Because from God's perspective, all of that is already done. We have been our sin has been removed and we have been declared and stand before God righteous. Righteous we are god is working in us to work into will according to his good pleasure and the outworking of that is this that we work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling seeking that's philippians 2:12 and 13 i did in reverse order such that the outworking of that is that we grow in the likeness of christ in little tiny ways and we have the hope of the resurrection certainty, cert- the certainty of that. That is ours, and we partake of that by in Christ. And so when the temptation comes to look to something else, and it does, we, remember, we must remember that. And when we find our eyes turning to other things, and they do, and they will, we return to Christ. So he made that, offered that sacrifice through his own blood, not the blood of a bull or a goat, which really could not take care of sin in an eternal sense. It could only deal with it temporally for life in the land. Because the covenant was one built around life in the land. It was a covenant of works. Do this and live for life in the land. It testified of the fact that uh, of that same covenant by which we failed in the garden. and then in verse 13 he then gives us the therefore the thing that is important the thing that he's saying therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured here we have reached as gordon lensky in his uh, uh, not gordon but dr lensky in his commentary he says is the climax of the epistle he says, from the, start, from the start, its aim has been to restore the wavering faith of the Jewish Christian readers in Jesus, to rid them of their recently conceived desire to go back to Judaism. To accomplish this effectively, he continues, the break with their nation, with all Jews, must be final, irrevocable, apparent at every turn. This is here told them in the most masterful way. The writer includes himself. He adopts a wording from the ritual of Moses for the Day of Atonement. And he does this after the fullest preparation. Who could do better? No one could do better. So let us go outside the camp and bear his reproach. We look at the cross of Christ. And we see what we look and we understand it rightly, we see something that was and is for us our redemption. We see something that God worked good. But conventional wisdom would tell us, why would you ever do that? Why would you go outside the security of the camp and go to this man who died died a humiliating, weak death? To quote, I, I might be, I might even be a little bit dated in saying this. Looking at what he did and it's going weak, why would any of us do that? because of what the cross of Christ is. Carl Truman, he says if the cross of Christ, the most evil act in human history, can be in line with God's will and be the source of the decisive de- defeat of the very evil that caused it, then any other evil can also be subverted to the cause of good. You see, when we think about power, we want to think of it in terms of some we want to think of something powerful like an explosion. We want to say, okay, so God's power is like that, but only magnified. It's a grand display of strength and power and might and wonder. But how is God's power displayed in Jesus Christ? Through the frailty and through the weakness of the cross. Now, we see that, the God's power and display, because of what came afterwards, the resurrection. But without the cross, there is no resurrection in fact, during this season, it's been brought up. So I'm, someone said this to me before, and I, I figure I need to find a time to say this uh, from the pulpit, and now's a good time. Don't worry, it's nothing bad. What are we celebrating this season during Advent, looking to Christ and his birth? It's not about his birth. His birth was, it was, it was a means to the end. This is about the cross, It's about the death of Christ. And so if we're going to understand God's power, we need to understand it in terms of this cross. Power that is hidden in the form of weakness. If Jesus Christ, the most blessed person upon the earth, was blessed through his suffering and his death and revealed to have been blessed through his suffering and his death, Then that is where we go. We go to Christ, even if it means bearing reproach, being despised, being looked down upon. We go to Christ. See, Christianity is not about gaining power according to the war, according to the way the world defines power, or gaining influence, or gaining status there are many movements right now because some many Christians are very confused about the age in which we live and wanting to redefine christianity in terms of the medieval vision of a glorious christendom that's going to conquer the whole world through military might and such i think we saw i think and but then we forget the results of that and how the church was terribly corrupted through all that. No, we go to Christ. And if God's going, deals with his, the, his son, the most perfect man who has ever lived upon this earth, if he deals that way with his beloved son, who are we that we might expect something different? God, Christ died upon the cross so now we can be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous and have all the power in the world and take over the seven mountains. No, we go to Christ and bear the reproach. We recognize this, that his grace is sufficient for us. 2 Corinthians twelve eight through 10 Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This is speaking of his thorn in the flesh. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It is in our weakness, precisely my brothers and sisters in Christ, That we have our strength. And that may grate against our natural inclinations. To bear that reproach, going outside the camp. Looking outside the camp, we have a picture inside the camp. We have a picture of security, safety. Outside the camp is a place of vulnerability, a place of potential um, attack, so to speak. But that is precisely what Christ did for us, and in union with Him, that is where we are. And He gives us in verse 14 the basis, one of the bases for that. One of the reasons that we go outside the camp and we have quoted this a number of times through, this ser- through our, the series of Hebrews because he's been hinting at this, and now he explicitly states this. Here we have four. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. One of the great desires of many a people is to have a homeland. Many conflicts in the world revol- resolve- revolve around homelands. Or somebody wanting more land as their homeland. And more land and more land as their homeland. But we learned earlier in the book of Hebrews, when, uh, in, our, in our study in Hebrews chapter 11, when, Mos- when Abraham went out, it, was not, it wasn't primarily about finding a piece of earth upon which to set up camp. But he was looking for the eternal city. The, the text explicitly states that. The nature of it to go outside the gate. Inside the gate is a place of security. But outside the gate is vulnerable. The reason for that, we don't have here a lasting city. I am a great uh, lover of things from reading things from the 1600s and into the 1700s. But some of those folks that I read, that I read, whom I really, really appreciate. And here's what we're going to say. You know, everybody has to be taken with a grain of salt. They desired a piece of earth upon which they, many of them desired a piece of earth upon which they can establish this is our Christian land we don't have a lasting city here if a land ha- if a, uh, a land happens to be over be uh, a lot of Christians great praise the Lord if not still praise the Lord we don't have here a lasting city to quote Johnny Cash He said, you can have my empire of dirt. Because what we have received is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The things of this world in which you place so much hope, they all shake and fade away, whether that would be belongings, whether that would be influence and power and status, or even governments or nations or countries, they all shake and fade away. But what we have doesn't fade away, so thus we go outside the camp. And the result of that in verses 15 and 16. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That is to live in gratefulness for this kingdom which we have received that cannot be shaken. This eternal city to which we presently and truly belong. At the end of Hebrews chapter 12, we quoted it earlier. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Recognizing that uh, together when we gather, our worship is one that should be driven by reverence and awe and gratefulness. And in our day to day lives, we live in gratefulness for the goodness of God that he is that he has given to us. And expressing thankfulness in reverence and awe of him. And here he says it this way. Let us always be offering up a sacrifice of praise to God. And what he means by that, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Our temptation is to read that in terms of this. What he means by a sacrifice of praise is primarily about vocal praise. That praises with lips. Let us offer up praises with our words. And that is definitely part of this. But the sacrifice of praise is this. The sacrifice of praise itself is the fruit of lips that confess his name. That is, we confess his name. And the fruit of that is offering sacrifice of praise. It includes vocal praise. But it includes far more than that it includes god's law by which we seek to, to be thankful to him seeking to obey his 10 commandments and returning to christ turning to him every time which hap- every time we become aware that we have fallen away from that which happens which is it's happening in each of us right now in different ways we are walk, we are disobeying god and looking to christ It is a it is living in thankfulness to God for what he has done for us. We are greatly guilt. We have great guilt. But God in his grace has redeemed us. And now we live in gratitude with sacrifices of praise, looking to him, obeying him as we're going to see. There is a significant horizontal aspect to this. We often think of praise to God and thankfulness to him primarily. And sometimes we might think of it in terms of only vertical. That it's simply just between me and God. It's just things I do just between me and God. But he actually defines what... uh, He expands upon what he's talking about in verse 16. Which he says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So to do good which is a, a general statement to do good according to God's word, according to God's revelation, and to share what we have. That is with, other, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's both the horizontal and the vertical dimension of this. And he, said, and he references at the end of it, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God, going back to the idea of the sacrifices. These are the sacrifices of which he's talking about doing good and sharing with our brothers and sisters in Christ and including those who have need. As Galatians tells us, do good to all, especially those of the household of God. So to do good is to keep before us what God has told us to do. Micah chapter six, verse eight gives us a summary of the law. He has told you, O man, what he requires of you, but to do justly and to and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's a summary of uh, the Ten Commandments in reality, or to love the or some people might say that uh, some people you might have heard said, and I used to say this that the New Testament standard is one of kind of a lesser standard. Than God's Ten Commandments. Rather it is. uh, Simply love God and love neighbor. In reality that's just a summary. Of the Ten Commandments. To love God and to love neighbor. It's not a lesser. It's not a lesser sense. But it is in its full sense. To do good. To share what we have. Which brings us back to what he said earlier. In which he says. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. God has blessed us and given us so that we can also bless others. We have been freed in Christ from the cruel and brutal ethics of self preservation and self interest. We now live in interest to God in Christ and interest to our brothers and sisters in Christ, or are called to. Philippians 2. Consider the interests of others as, above your, uh, as not only equal to, but also giving them priority over our own. The Romantic era of Western history, that's the late 1700s into the 1800s, uh, said if human beings could simply if human beings could be freed from the shackles of society and simply be, per, simply be freed to pursue, the, pursue their own self-interests, then society would be wonderful and great. Because it's, society shackles them and tells them about all these things. But people were left to themselves. Everything would just be great. Then World War I and World War II happened. But you see, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what it is to live in thankfulness. It is to do good. To share what you have. I highly commend to you. uh, Reading through. Um, And on the website. Week to week we have. Right now we're doing New City Catechism. Uh, But I highly recommend. You get a hold of a copy of. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. Or the Baptist Catechism. Or uh, even better the Heidelberg Catechism. And even better than that. An Orthodox Catechism which is the same thing as the Heidelberg, but uh, corrected the errors they made on baptism. <laughs> they baptized it. But read the section on thankfulness. Read the section on thankfulness and about what it is, what God's law tells us and what it is to live. That, uh, those are our sacrifices of praise, my brothers and sisters. Living in thankfulness to obedience to God. Part of that is gathering together with God's people. A significant part is gathering together with God's people, worshiping him together, receiving from him the means of grace in the divine service. I love when the Lutherans call this the divine service because it's God is serving us. He's serving us Christ. But also giving diligence in our day-to-day lives to offer sacrifices of praise thankful for the fact that he has given this given us this unshakable kingdom god is pleased with those and receives them in spite of our sinfulness because of christ brothers and sisters let us pray father we come before you thanking you that you have done good for us And are good to us. We ask Lord that you'd rest upon us. Help us that we might. Live. By faith in Christ. In thankfulness. For the work that has been done on our behalf. Going outside the gate. Bearing the reproach. We pray these things our Lord. In Jesus name. Amen.